uh, find your copy of God's Word, please, either what you brought with you or there in the Pew Bible, and turn. Book of Genesis in the fourth chapter. You're visiting with us. We've just considered in all of its dreadfulness the account of Cain and Abel, in fact, the death of Abel, the hand of his brother Cain, and the judgment of God that comes in response. The curse of Cain, as we called it. We're picking up today at verse 16. We'll read through verse 24, and the whole of this passage will be our text this morning. Genesis chapter 4. Beginning at verse 16, this is the word of God. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushiah, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're ready, O Lord, or at least we think we are. By your grace, we will be ready to be searched by your word, instructed, but more than instructed, shaped, discerned, known. We pray that now, the voice be the voice of a man. Lord Jesus, you will speak through your word. We pray this in your own name. Amen. In light of that curse of Cain, that we've been studying in the last few weeks, in fact, verse 16 might come as something of a surprise. Then Cain went away 
from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Settled, wait, wait, I thought, we thought that the curse that came upon Cain was that he was condemned to be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. We might have expected Cain to have the fate of someone who loses their way in some Appalachian trail path through the wilderness and is found or whose remains are found long later in some desolate part of the world. That's perhaps what we might have thought the curse of Cain would lead to. Apparently, the curse that Cain is under is something more profound than a literal wandering in the earth. Cain was cursed with being an outcast from the presence of God, remember? The presence of God with his people, remember? And this restlessness that is the result of God's curse would fundamentally be something spiritual. He was a man without a home in a country for his soul. Not unlike with the judgment passed down to Adam who uh, in the day that he died, day that he ate, died spiritually. Cain, the day that he received this sentence, was in the profoundest sense a fugitive from God. We like to quote the Aragorn figure from the Lord of the Rings. Not all who wander are lost. They might look like they're lost if you track them on Google Maps, but they know their way back. Well, the opposite could also be said. Not all who are lost are wanderers, at least in some outward sense. Many of them settle down, get jobs, make a living, even a handsome living. But they're lost souls. They are aimless wanderers in life in all the ways that really count. Anyone who removes himself from the presence of the Lord is a spiritual fugitive, even if he has mansions in every continent. So as if to emphasize that we're on the right track in thinking this way, we're told that Cain settles down in the land of Nod. Nod means to wander. So this is the opportunity as we move forward in Genesis and in Genesis chapter 4 for the inspired author to give us a preview what is a what is the life of a lost soul look like? Uh, better than that, or more than that, what is the life of a whole community, a whole society of lost souls look like? You could look at this passage as just giving us the genealogy of the clan of Cain, and we are given that, but there's something more that's going on. We're given a profile of what it would look like, rather, what it will look like. And there's a whole world of Cain. So, brothers and sisters, we're going to look first at the image of God in the clan of Cain. Then we'll look at the image of Satan in the clan of Cain. And then we'll seek to make some practical applications about those two things being found side by side in the world of fallen humanity. So first, the image of God in the clan 
of Cain. And I hope you saw that as I read this passage as before us, uh, Cain becomes a patriarch of a large family, a whole society, and not everything about it is bad by any means. You could actually take the things that are said about this clan of Cain that are good and organize them under two headings. Cain settles down in Nod, and he begins to fulfill the mandate that was first given to his father to fill the earth, you see that in the passage, and to subdue the earth. We are familiar with those two parts of the commission that God gave to Adam, and now we're seeing Cain succeeding in doing both. We certainly see the clan of Cain filling the earth. The language of verse 17 is a mirror image of the language of verse 1. Cain and his wife have the same wonder and joy of becoming parents that Adam and Eve had. They named their son Enoch, not to be confused with another Enoch. It's coming up in the next chapter. Okay, so I'll go ahead and make reference to this question that's often put, where in the world... Did Cain find his wife? That's a real head-scratcher for so many, and it baffles me why it would be so. I think this is hard for many because the day would come when God would make clear through Moses, you cannot marry your sister. That would be in the days of Moses. But apparently there was nothing inherently sinful about such a union, only after God had forbidden it. And the church, in answering this question through the ages, has said, well, apparently, he married his sister. Now, uh, what we're not told us clearly, but I've been interested to find in several uh, very uh, solid commentators the presumption that he was already married to one of the other daughters of Adam and Eve, when he killed his brother. And the inference is fairly straightforward. Who would accept a marriage proposal after Cain had fallen under the curse of God? We're not certain about when he was married. We deduce he was married uh, to one of the daughters that's recorded for us later the text. Bear in mind as the genealogy then unfolds these different names that uh, it's a typical biblical genealogy. It has a certain purpose. It's by no means exhaustive. So after Adam comes Cain, then Enoch, then Irad, then Mahujael, then Methushael, and then Lamech. And it becomes clear, as we'll see more in just a moment, that Moses is especially interested in your knowing about Lamech. So the genealogy follows that particular strand. But still, seven generations, eight if you include Adam, are now before us. Humanity is filling the earth, and just with an ordinary amount of fertility, this would be a vast, little society. Especially if you think of the fact that life was prolonged in these days, and all seven generations would easily have existed together. Don't take this for granted, brothers and sisters. After all we've seen of Cain, after all we've seen of Cain falling under the curse of God as a lost soul, this is a remarkable blessing. Cain becomes a clan, a multitude of descendants, a father of a little nation. He's filling the earth. 
Second thing we see is the clan of Cain subduing the earth. The first thing we're told about Cain himself is that he builds a city and he names it after his son. Now, don't think L.A. or even Mount Airy. Uh, cities are a relative term, to be sure. And this would have itself taken many decades, even centuries, we can suppose. But Cain is presented to us as the first city planner in Holy Scripture. He's the first builder of this community that comes together to live together and to work together and therefore to accomplish remarkable feats of human ingenuity. This is what cities make possible. And though Cain has been put out of his first vocation under the curse of God, there are other apparent avenues of taking dominion that are still open to him. He's a city builder. And we are informed about some of Cain's great-grandchildren, leaving a few greats out, uh, as Moses particularly wants us to know about the children of Lamech, three of them in particular. Jabal, father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. This man, apparently something more than what Abel first did as a shepherd, the language that's used of Jabal is on a bigger scale. There's uh, the science of breeding and of feeding and of, well, think rancher uh, more than shepherd. That's Jabal. Jubal is the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. So Jubal's creativity lies at the headwaters of this whole world of music that we enjoy to this day. He's the one who made beautiful sounds via strings or wind. And then there's Tubal Cain. He's introduced as the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. He's credited with those first discoveries. The use of iron ore that would lead to eventually all the use of metal and the science of metallurgy in the world. Folks, this is taking dominion, just as God had called Adam to do. These are the descendants of Cain, under the curse of Cain, fulfilling this mandate that God had given Adam to fill the earth and to subdue the earth. This is remarkable. What will a world of lost souls look like? Well, it will look like a lot of God-likeness. We're learning that in Genesis chapter 4. What is the name we give to all this creativity and ingenuity and productivity and fruitfulness? Well, the name we give it in Genesis is the image of God. Cain and his descendants still bear the image of God. They still, in a variety of ways, look like the fruitful one. God himself. They still in a variety of ways look like the great creator, architect of the earth. There's still glory of the image of God in those cursed by God, lost souls. We'll return to this in just a moment to dwell on that. 
That's the first thing that we see, the image of God in the clan of Cain. But the second thing, all there as well in the same text, is the image of Satan in the clan of Cain. We needed to see the image of God first, I think, because then we would, if we didn't, we would be so preoccupied with what's dreadful in our account about the descendants of Cain. If you thought being a child of the devil was bad, apparently being a great, 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 great grandchild of Satan is even worse. Sin is being compounded through the generations. And Genesis 4 also makes this clear in this genealogy of Cain. And of course, it's showcased in this dreadful man named Lamech. If there is someone that could make Cain look like a saint in comparison, well, it's, it's Lamech. There's two kinds of evil that Lamech is credited with introducing into the world. Two desecrations, I'll put it. Number one, you see the desecration of marriage in Lamech. Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. So this is called bigamy. A man taking two wives, it will lead, as you know well, to a very long, very painful record of polygamy, more broadly, multiple wives. Now, it's true. Uh, Moses doesn't comment on Lamech's taking of two wives. There's no explicit criticism in the text, but I just want you to bear in mind how Moses himself, just a couple of chapters earlier, had introduced the institution of marriage to us. And you remember this is where he couldn't resist making editorial comment on what God was doing in the garden, creating a woman to be married to a man. Moses had just said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Moses doesn't need to tell you what's happening. In light of what he's already told you, Lamech is shattering the sanctity of marriage. God made it one plus one equals one. That's marriage. Lamech takes... Two wives. His version of marriage is they three shall become one flesh. It's a desecration. Why have men throughout human history sought multiple wives? Well, not always, and perhaps not even primarily as an expression of lust. Frankly, there are less entangling ways that wicked men can satisfy their lust. Usually it's an expression of ambition to ensure they have the strength of many sons. That's why kings had multiple wives all throughout the scripture and to this day. That's why wealthy and powerful men who want to be wealthier and more powerful, they want multiple wives so they have multiple sons. That's why Abraham himself resorts to this. Hagar. 
Lamech is apparently quite a royal figure. He's got power and influence. His sons become entrepreneurs who found whole guilds in the arts and industry, but he is not content to be fruitful and multiply the way God appointed. Under the strictures of God's will and design for the family. So he desecrates the institution of marriage out of selfish ambition. You know that this is a grave sin in the clan of Cain that will show up in the covenant community in the Old Testament. Matthew Henry has an interesting comment, an edifying one in this this regard. He says, when a bad custom is begun by bad men, sometimes men of better character are through unwariness drawn in to follow them. Jacob, David, many others who were otherwise good men were afterwards ensnared in this sin which Lamech began. Lamech desecrates the sanctity of marriage. He desecrates the sanctity of human life, perhaps most dramatically. This passage that's before us, this uh, survey of the clan of Cain, culminates in a song. It's a poem put in poetic form, uh, like a song. It's the song of Lamech. It was apparently something Lamech was heard to say often, perhaps even sang, and it's dreadful. If you thought Cain was brazen in his hard-heartedness, get a load of Lamech. The whole point of the song is Lamech is boasting If you think Cain was a bad, you know what? I'm worse. That's the boast of Lamech, comparing himself to the patriarch, Cain. Lamech boasts of his violence against those who've crossed him. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. In other words, you touch me, you die. That's Lamech's credo. Young or old, I will kill you if you cross me. Even worse than that. The key thought of the song of Lamech is blasphemous. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You know what he's doing? Lamech, seven generations later, is aware of God's word to Cain. God's expression of his commitment to avenge anyone who would strike Cain sevenfold. And what Lamech is saying is God promised a sevenfold vengeance. That's nothing compared to what I'll do. My promise to anyone who crosses me, 70. Yahweh, mere sevenfold. So Lamech is not going to let the sanctity of marriage get in his way. He's not going to let the sanctity of human life get in his way. Cain murdered, we gather out of a passion born of unbridled envy. For Lamech, murder, serial murder is a way of life. It's his philosophy. It's his way of living. 
But you're seeing something else now in this plan of Cain, this world that's emerging, this human race that's emerging, doesn't just bear the image of God. It bears the unmistakable image of the devil. Folks, this too is a, what a world of Cain looks like. Ruthless ambition, wickedness, violence. Cain's family, one has put it, is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. At this point in my sermon prep, I just went and looked at the newspaper. I thought, it, it actually occurs to me, Genesis 4 is God giving his people a category for making sense of what's on the front page of the newspaper virtually every day. Here's what was on the front page of my newspaper on Thursday. Frackers are now drilling for clean power. Subtitle, oil and gas companies are accelerating investments in geothermal energy. Betting the technologies that fuel the shale revolution can turn the building industry into a large producer. Sorry, the budding industry into a large producer of clean power. Kids, let me tell you what that means. Kids, uh, apparently the center of the earth is really hot. Every now and then you get a sign of that. When some of it starts gushing out, you know what that's called. It's a volcano. The center of the earth is very hot. Actually, at heat at certain places under the earth's, uh, core, uh, earth's uh, surface comes within a few thousand feet of the surface. We are now, as the image bearers of God, able to drill six and 7,000 feet under the surface. That's... Um, that's the Empire State Building times six. And then at the bottom to start drilling sideways. Now geothermal energy is the ambition of men to tap into the heat that's in the earth. And in a way that I have absolutely no way of explaining other than to say in a very sophisticated way, making a, a steam engine that will run whole plants. This is next. This is amazing. The image of God. Same newspaper, just an inch or two over in my screen because I don't actually get a paper. Putin warns an anxious West over nuclear war. Putin has re-engaged the West with these threats the use of nuclear weapons. And there are some in Europe that are taking him especially seriously now. What a remarkable invention, a weapon of mass destruction, now used not only by Putin to seek to gain their worldly ambitions at indescribable human life. 
So both of these things are seen in the clan of Cain, the best and the worst of fallen humanity. And you see it every day, with or without a newspaper. So what do we do with this, brothers and sisters? Sometimes that's the bigger question. It's not so much a passage, what does it mean? What is it saying? But why is it telling us this? Why now? Why here? Three applications for us. Number one. Folks, God wants us to see here in Genesis 4 how lavish his grace is towards the mass of humanity that never seek him. We've been seeing the grace of God towards sinners well before this. Now we're seeing the grace of God towards sinners who are in rebellion against him and are multiplying and deepening in their rebellion, and yet we're still seeing God's grace. What explains all this ingenuity and this resulting prosperity in the clan of Cain? Well, this is the word that doesn't actually appear in our text. It's the word that captures any kind of favor of God towards his creatures, more specifically, any kind of favor of God towards sinful, undeserving creatures. It is the word that we use all the time with regard to salvation. It's also a word that captures what God does day after day for those who are in open rebellion against him, giving them gifts that make life so amazingly, wonderfully good despite sin. It's the word grace. That's the word that explains what we're seeing in Cain's descendants. Any capacity that any human being has to enrich this life, what he does, that's grace. Listen to the reformer John Calvin. Moses, however, expressly celebrates the remaining goodness of God on that race which otherwise would have been doomed or deemed void and barren of all good. Let us then know that the sons of Cain though deprived of the spirit of regeneration, were yet endued with gifts of no despicable kind, just as the experience of all ages teaches us how widely the rays of divine light have shone on unbelieving nations for the benefit of the present life. And we see that the excellent gifts of the spirit are distributed throughout the whole human race. Some of you will know what we're talking about by the term that theologians use, it's generally called common grace. That's what we're talking about now. I think that's such a regrettable expression. (laughs) Common grace. Sounds like it's so, so ordinary, it's scarcely worth mentioning. But brothers and sisters, God's grace is never commonplace. It's never ordinary. I want you to think just now of the modern day ingenious infidel. Uh, You can probably think of one particular, one specific. Maybe you've come to have some fascination with this person's genius. He's so smart, such a genius, so organizationally visionary. A genius, why? Why does he have that capacity? The answer is because of God's loving 
favor that still rests upon him. And according to Calvin, his spirit that is at work within him, despite his utter hardness of heart and his ingratitude to God, that person lives every day in rebellion against God and awash in the grace of God, utterly surrounded, every day experiencing God's not-so-common grace. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, the most basic thing is to worship a God who just shows grace at every turn. Genesis 4 is revealing us to us such a God. In of all places, the clan of Cain. Worship him for his grace. Every time you see some expression of creativity or beauty, any ingenious invention in science, any wonderful composition in music, any line of poetic excellence, praise God. He's so gracious to all men. I hope you noted Calvin's reference to the spirit at work in all of humanity. You know why he does that? Because there is no source of what is good or true or beautiful apart from God. So if it's out there in the world, God's put it there. It's his gift. Second thing we should recognize God wants, surely, he wants to preserve us from a foolish envy of the sophistication of fallen mankind. Think about who Moses was originally writing these words to. A bunch of shepherds, Bedouins, traveling from the most sophisticated civilization of that time, Egypt. And all of their lack of sophistication, he's writing to those who do not compare well to the arts and sciences of Egypt. Paul, in a similar way, in his day, as he writes to the Corinthians at the height of Roman power and glory, he says to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. In that reference that I made a moment ago to what Calvin says about this doctrine, he says, there's an impressive sophistication among the heathen that compares more favorably than to us. He says, after all, the liberal arts, the sciences, they've descended to us from the heathen. We're indeed compelled to acknowledge that we've received astronomy and the other parts of philosophy and medicine and the order of civil government from them. Now, brothers and sisters, the Christian response to this is not to poo-poo the glory of the nations through all of this that we see as if we're not concerned about such things. No, we give thanks for it, and we take full advantage of it. This image-bearing of God that even the heathen can display, we use it for the kingdom of God. After all, Jubal, Invents the lyre and the harp. And who says, thank you very much. We'll worship God with it. We don't dismiss 
those things which the heathen are endowed by God with the ability to do. Folks, as we give thanks for and, and sometimes stand in awe of the sophistication of fallen humanity, we would be very foolish to envy the lives of those in whom it appears. You can love Mozart's music. You really should. But don't envy Mozart not his life. You can be in awe of Stephen Hawking's grasp of theoretical physics. Don't envy his soul. You can be pretty amazed at how Elon Musk is able to take emerging technologies and build whole industries that pursue them and exploit them. That's impressive. But don't envy Musk. God's telling us in Genesis 4, before you envy this clan of Cain, remember for all their sophistication, they do live in the land of Nod. You can see it in their lives. Have you seen this juxtaposition? Professional success, personal failure. Truly great men, but bad men. Men able to harness the, the heat buried with thousands of feet below the surface, but not able to harness their own passions. God wants us never to envy the sophistication of fallen mankind. One more thing we should see in Genesis 4. Why is it here? What is God saying to us here at this point? God surely wants us to see where our own pursuit of his likeness in the earth must start. So Cain is given the privilege of having children and inventing wonders, the image of God in the clan of Cain. Brothers and sisters, it will fall short of everything God ultimately intended for his image bearers. And it falls short of what he's doing, even in the most basic of ways, among the seed of the woman. Their taking dominion begins with their own hearts. It would continue with the hearts of their children. That's where their taking dominion focuses, and that's where it begins. This would be their greatest priority. All their other cultural achievements, however glorious they are and important, would be second-tier priorities. We'd say it in New Covenant terms, the Lordship of Christ, which we seek over all the earth, begins in our hearts, in the hearts of our children. Listen to Matthew Henry. Talking about Lamech. Here was a father of the shepherds. And a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices, how to be rich and how to be mighty and how to be merry, but nothing of God, his fear, his service among them. 
brothers and sisters, the men of this world achieve greatness in this life. And it compares favorably to the greatness of the church in certain respects. But it stands to reason. They only have this life. We have a new heaven and new earth to prepare ourselves for and our children. And this rightly is the work that gets our best. Puts a limit on our professional careers, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? This adds so much more urgent matters than just our enjoyment of the arts, as much as we might enjoy them. We have Bible knowledge to master. We have theological heritage to pass on. This turns the men of the covenant from seeking the love of many a woman to living a long life by God's grace, deepening their love for one woman. Turns our women from seeking not just the joy of becoming a mother, but the painful, sacrificial, hard-won joy of seeing children walking in the faith. Uh, Folks, I want you to envision the best that fallen humanity does without any of the worst, just the best, the best of, of everything that fallen humanity accomplishes in all of its glory, take out all the, the bad. It's framed in a beautiful portrait and it's the image of God. And as you see that in your mind's eye, imagine the center of that picture, a, a hole, as if a cannonball had just passed through. That's what fallen humanity can do, putting the image of God on display. If we're children of God, we do want it all. We want to keep our hearts with all diligence. And yeah, we'd like to harness the heat that lies at the core of the earth. But we know which is at the center of the portrait of the image of God. We know what's at the center. So, brothers and sisters, saints of God, keep doing what you're doing. Keep your priority on ruling over the sin that crouches in your own heart. Keep your priority on raising children who love their Savior. And be grateful for all the glory, the residual glory of the clan of Cain. We're not our people belong to another family, the family of God, will inherit the new earth, indeed all the glories of the old earth, as we keep our focus first and foremost on the dominion of Christ in our hearts, in the hearts of our children. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, it may have been the voice of Pastor Trice and the words of Pastor Rosser, but it was the deed of the Lord Jesus Christ when little Lily was baptized this morning, and it has to be your doing. It has to be your doing in our hearts. 
hearts of our children. Make a difference, O Lord, between this community and the clan of Cain. Do this redeeming work, Lord Jesus, in our hearts. Cleanse us from every defilement. Enable us to rule over the sin that crouches in our hearts. Allow us to pass on our faith to our children by the Spirit's work. Give us something else in glory that is only the remnants of your image. So, Father, we'll praise you for an eternity to come. Would you do this in our midst as your people? dwelt by the saving work of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.